Greetings and welcome to episode 12 of Theology and Sci-Fi, the podcast. My name is Derek E. Trout, and I am your host, and I am so thankful that you have decided to join me. Thank you very much. Today we turn our attention to the silver screen and what is considered to be the first full-length science fiction movie, Metropolis. A movie that is unlike any other that I have seen, and certainly much different than any we have looked at this season on the podcast. It's a silent movie. Nothing is said on screen. You... There's a lot of music, and music fills the, the the whole time we're watching. You just, but you just have to read the words of what people say, and there's not even a ton of dialogue in terms of reading what people say in the movie. A lot of it is not told through what people say; it's just told through actions and told through music. It's a movie that was released in 1927, and I struggled with this movie and if I should even look at it on this podcast because, well. Let's just get started. We'll look at that and dive into those reasons why. So, the opening lines that are written on the screen for this movie, uh, this film is, here's what it says. This film is not of today or the future. It tells of no place. It serves no tendency, party, or class. It has a moral that grows on the pillar of understanding. The mediator between brain and muscle must be the heart. Quite an interesting line that starts out with the film, saying that it's not of today or the future, tells of no place, serves no tenancy, party, or class. I'm not sure all those things are true, but it's an interesting way to start this movie, saying that it's not really telling of anything except for a moral, and that moral is the mediator between brain and muscle must be the heart. But this quote was attributed to Thea von Harborough. And Von Harborough was a writer, novelist, director, and actress, and she wrote the book Metropolis, which is based on this movie. She wrote the book Metropolis, but she also wrote the screenplay for the movie. And here I pause to wonder if this is a work that should even be celebrated or examined or recognized because Von Harborough was German and she lived from 1888 to 1854. And when Hitler came to power in Germany in 1933, well, Harborough was supportive. She was a Nazi. According to author Patrick McGillan, who wrote a book titled Fritz Lang, The Nature of the Beast. Now, Fritz Lang is the director of Metropolis, but he was also married to von Harborough. So here's what he says. Uh, here's what Patrick uh, McGillan says about von Harborough and the Nazis coming into, into power. Here's what, here's what he writes. Under a regime where every film was a state film, Thea von Harborough amassed, um, amassed writing credits on some 26 films while giving uncredited assistance to countless others, including a handful with an indisputable national socialist worldview. So, should I even be examining a movie that was written and directed by people who became Nazis? Now, Metropolis was released, the movie, in 1927, so there's not Nazis at that time. Hitler hadn't taken over Germany yet, but they still become Nazis and supporters. They become Nazis. And here now is when we come to a question that I often ask myself and still struggle to give an answer that I am completely satisfied with. How much can we separate the art from the artist? How much should we separate the art from the artist? Can, can it even be done? Can the art even be separated from the artist? Now, 
No work of art can be completely separated from the artist as the views, philosophies, belief, theology, etc. They are going to be seen in the work of writers, directors, authors, even painters, musicians, those kinds of things. You are going to see what people believe through their work. But to someone being a Nazi or a murderer or a pedophile or a terrorist mean that we should never read a book that they have written or never watch a movie that they have written or directed or helped produce? Should we just look at these by all these terrible people, Nazis, murderers, pedophile, terrorists, say they, if anybody who has, if anybody who fits under one of those categories, if anybody who is one of those things is there, then we should just not watch any of their movies. We should not listen to any of their music. We should not go look at any of their paintings, whatever it may be. How much can we separate the art from the artist? This is a question I really struggle with and have thought about having just a standalone standalone episode on it. And at some point, I, th I think I will because I spend a lot of time struggling with this question and how to answer it. And I've even looked at some authors within science fiction and said, I don't want to go there because I know what they've done. And I don't want to examine their works. But So I struggle with it. But what I'll say for now is, and for this case is that just because I am watching this movie does not mean that I am a supporter of Nazis, right? Reading or watching movies made by bad people does not mean that you support their cause. So just because I watch this does not mean that I am supportive of the Nazi cause. That would be absurd. That, that would be something that would be a, a false equivalent. Just because you're watching a, a, a movie that was made by somebody who's a murderer does not mean that you support murdering people. That's not the way that this works. However, I also think that we cannot just ignore everything that has been done and made by bad people, right? We can't just ignore history and pretend like it didn't happen. Some people want to do that today, just ignore it, just forget about the past. Very foolish mistake there because when we forget about the past, we are doomed to repeat it. So we can't just ignore all these things that these bad people have done and pretend that they didn't exist and pretend that their works didn't exist and pretend that things that they were involved with didn't happen. We need to learn from history. We need to learn from mistakes, and, and we need to learn from the things that people have done wrong so that we do not repeat them. And maybe by looking at the work of these people like a movie, we can learn more about them. We can learn more about their ideas and what they believed and, and supported to make sure that we are not believing and supporting and doing similar things. So while I do not support Nazis, and I hope that you do not either, we push on to watch what is considered to be the first feature-length science fiction film with some hesitation because I still struggle with this question even here today. But one more thing. When I set out and picked Metropolis and even uh, Frankenstein to end the city, so I wanted to end, or to, to end this season, I wanted to end this season with the, the first full-length feature science fiction movie and also what's considered to be the first science fiction book. So when I set out, I'm like, I think it'd be cool to look at Metropolis and then Frankenstein, obviously. But So when I set out to do this with Metropolis, I was ignorant of these Nazi connections and the Nazi support and love of this film. Uh, Hitler and his inner circle came to love Metropolis. They came to love the film from, from what I've read. I didn't know any of that until I actually started, hey, I'm going to watch Metropolis and start to get ready for this podcast. And then I found out some about it. I, I just didn't know. So maybe I should do some more research before picking works to look at. But if, at the same time, if you look hard enough, I am sure that you could find a reason why all the authors or directors that we have examined on this season 
should not be examined, right? You're going to find somebody who's done some bad things. You're going to find somebody who are bad people. Maybe not Nazi bad, but you could still find something that might get them canceled today for what they did because we're all human. We've all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. So if we start to look at these authors and start to do that and and kind of put them under a microscope to look at their works and say, to look at them as people and say, is there anything that they ever did wrong so we shouldn't look at their works? Then we wouldn't be looking at anything because we could find that for everyone. So separating the art from the artist could be taken to the extreme of examining nothing because we've all done something wrong. So none of our work is, is worth looking at. Then it could also go to the other extreme where the visions of the artist don't matter and it doesn't matter what they've done or who they are or things that they've made because they could still make some great art and they could still do some great things. So we should just go and completely separate the art from the artist and no matter what they've done, we can still enjoy their work. I would probably be somewhere all over that scale. If I'm being honest with you, there are some people that I would look at and say, I know what this person has done. I don't want to read their stuff. I don't want to read their books. I don't want to watch their movies because I know what they've done. But then I could look at other people and say, well, I know they've done some bad things and I'm still going to watch their movies. I'm still going to read their stuff. So to be quite honest, I, 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 I think it's a subjective scale that I may find myself at different points on depending on the different people and what they've done. And is that right or not? I don't know because this is something I'm still struggling with today. However, I'd say that I'm probably mostly in the middle of that scale where I I'm very aware of what artists have done. I'm more aware now after this and have done some more research into some other people. And there are some other people that we've looked at, some works even on this season that uh, were some questionable people and the choices that they made and the things that they did, some very questionable things. So I'm going to pay a little bit more attention to that, but also realizing I just can't ignore them. I just can't pretend like nothing ever happened and maybe reading some of their stuff will in some way be beneficial to seeing their worldview and and seeing what to do or what not to do and what to avoid and those kinds of things. So, but I'm I'm probably somewhere there where where there are um there are just some people who who have done some works that I can't support because of what they've done, and then some people who maybe other people say I can't support their works because of what they've done, but I necessarily. Wouldn't be. But all that to say, I do not think that the art can be completely separated from the artist. I think it's a really complicated question. And again, I struggle with it, but I would love to know what you think. And at some point, I I think it would be worth dedicating an entire episode just to this issue. I think it would be worth the discussion, but I would love to hear from you. How much can art be separated from the artist? Can art be separated from the artist? Should art be separated from the artist? What do you think about that? I'm all over the place on it. I'm still trying to decide what I feel. And there are some artists that I won't look at and their works and what they've done. But there are other ones that I will. And I wish I could give you... I mean, there are some... You know, when we get into the grounds of like pedophiles and terrorists and things like that, I don't want to read what they've written. I, I I don't want to. I don't want to give them that kind of support for that. But um, so 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 there is kind of a line in, in some things being worse than others. I think so. So I, again, I'm all over the place on this. And a question that I really struggle with and struggle. The more I watch this movie, the more I even struggle with this question. And should should I be doing this with this with this movie? But 
decided to to press on since Metropolis was not made by people who were Nazis at the time they made this. They were not active Nazis when they made this, although they became Nazis later. So I think that if this movie was made when they were Nazis, if this movie was made after 1993, when the Nazi regime controlled the film industry, if that were the case, I wouldn't be looking at this today. I don't think I, I, I couldn't do that. I, I wouldn't do that. And I wouldn't be looking at a Nazi propaganda film saying, well, what can we see from this? No, I, I, I wouldn't have any interest with that. But since these people were not Nazis at the time, just became that later, I, 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 I very hesitantly press on and struggle, struggle with even if this is the right thing to do. But what do you think? I would love to hear from you on on this this topic and this question of separating the art from the artist does someone being a terrible person mean that we should not read anything they've written or watch anything that they've made what do you think how much can we separate that art from the artist i would truly love to hear what you think about this well let's get to the movie as again i said as we as i hesitantly press on metropolis is rated well it came out before the rating system, but I would rate this movie G. There's nothing here that's questionable in terms of content or language or or even violence, I would say, especially compared to movies of today. There are also several runtimes of this movie. So the version that you watch, if you did watch this movie, might be different than mine. It seems like every time Metropolis was released in a country, there's a different version of the film. I actually wish I'd watched the whole full original version because I think it would have made more sense. But I watched this movie on the Roku app. I could watch it for free on the Roku app, although it did have some ads. Uh, And I believe the version that they have was the 1927 edited version of the movie. So the the studio thought that it was way too long and forced forced the, the makers of the film to cut about 37 minutes of it. So there's actually quite a bit that's in there that we uh, don't see. So there's some things in the edited version that don't make as much sense as in the full version, or at least that's what I've heard and read and and studied about. So I I said, some things here don't exactly make sense. So doing some study for this podcast, there's some people who are saying, and then this happens next. I said, wait, that never happened because it got cut from the version that I watched. So things did not make as much sense as they should have. And we'll get into that a little bit as we go through the movie. But as I said, this truly like on any other movie that we have looked at and being a silent film, and something that I'm sure that many of us in 2022 are not familiar with. I certainly was not. Uh, as far as I can remember, this is the first and hence only silent film I have ever watched in its entirety. I don't think I've watched another one. I think this is the first and only. But again, we look at the opening lines written on the screen. This film is not of today or the future. It tells of no place. It serves no tendency, party, or class. It has a moral that grows on the pillar of understanding. The mediator between brain and muscle must be the heart. If this film is not of today or tomorrow, it must be of yesterday. Is it, is, is it of the past if it is not of today or the future? Or is it in a different place maybe? It says here that uh, it, it tells of no place. Is it no place that we know of? Maybe this movie takes place in a galaxy far, far away. But that can't be because it tells of no place. And it serves no tendency or class. Well, we shall see um, about that. And we will also, uh, hopefully, by the end of this movie, be able to tell what is meant by the moral of this story. 
the mediator between the brain and muscle must be the heart. My guess, knowing at this point very little about the film when I started watching it and writing about it, knowing very little about the film and watching it when I first read that on the screen, I thought that the moral was going to show the difference between humans and machines. Um, that, that was my first guess. Um, the, the, the difference between humans and machines would be the heart. It would be feelings. It would be emotions. It would be the soul. That you can make a machine with a lot of brain and it can know a lot of things with strength and, and we can make machines that are stronger than the world's strongest man, but can we make machines that are alive like people? Uh, no. And originally I thought that's what this quote was about and thought I would find out and I was wrong. That's not what this quote is about at all. Uh, so I, I was uh, I was way off on that and, and what that means. The next part of the film, we'll get to what that means, but I was just way off. It doesn't have to do between machines and people. It does have to do with the working class and the ruling class. Um, anyway, we'll get into that. Next on the screen, we read, uh, far away from them, high in the heavens, the sun, life. Now, what that means, I wasn't sure because the movie had just started, but what we see throughout the movie is we find that the working class live, lives below Metropolis, the city, and they're making all the machines run that support the the city and who lives above ground in the city is the upper class, the the ruling class, I, I would call them, the the, the ones who are, are, are rich and ruling over the workers who are below ground and really doing a lot of the work, doing all the work to make the city run. But the, the, the rich, the ruling class uh, is the ones who, who's reaping all those 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 benefits. So, um the the ruling class is far away from them the working class they are high in the heavens they can see the sun they can see life but those who work underground cannot see that so we see lots of industrial images across the screen and uh on the screen the the day shift ends or at least one shift ends and people are walking out of the factory and others are walking into the factory or some kind of mine or or something and they are just marching in formation of dozens getting out of the factory and dozens walking in. The pace of the storytelling reminded me actually of 2001 A Space Odyssey. It's a very slow moving story compared to films today and something that takes its time in trying to show you what is happening since it can't tell you what is happening. Um, there, like I said, there's no, there's no dialogue. It's silent. So then on the screen it says, and high above a pleasure garden for the sons of the masters of Metropolis. So there is some kind of class system here, the ruling class, the haves and the have-nots, the rich and the poor, whatever you want to call them. And here we meet one of our main characters, Fredder. As he chases a girl around a fountain, they go to kiss, but they are interrupted by a class of students, uh, I think it is, who come into the room. Um, I, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, it's just a bunch of young kids with a, with a lady. There's a lady there and a number of young children come into the room. And she says, because um, we read what she says, she said, look, these are your brothers. Look, these are your brothers. Now, there are uh, a lot more um, adults in the room that come in there after she says that. And the lady, her name is Maria, we find out. So she comes in, interrupts things, says, look, these are your brothers. More people come into the room. And then um, her and the children leave. And it's kind of, I, I wrote down here, what, what is happening? Um, again, we got to kind of fill in some of the blanks here. And I think missing that 37 minutes of original runtime really hurts the understanding of this film. 
But Frederick, uh, he, he, he looks freaked out. Someone just came in and said, look, these are your brothers. And he says, who was that? And the response from someone, an older gentleman, gentleman who we have not met yet, replies, she's the daughter of a worker. The great machines far underground, yet high above the worker city is what we see next on screen. And uh, we go, so, so we're going down to the underground where the workers are. And we're setting up for some differences and division among the ruling class and the working class. And then we see Fredder in the factory, and they're making something. I, I don't know what they're making. They're, they're just having machines that are running the city. I'm not sure they're really producing anything. They're just making sure Metropolis runs the, way, runs the way that it's supposed to. But something goes wrong at the factory. There's some explosions. There, there's some, no good things are happening there. Explosions are going. People are falling off of, uh, off of staircases that are being led up to these machines, all these different things. Something has gone wrong here. And then something strange, something really weird happens. Fredder yells out, uh, Moloch. He just yells Moloch. And then he sees different people being, for lack of a better term, fed to the machine. It appears that these people are being sacrificed to the machine. There's parts moving and it looks like teeth and people are are marching up to this machine and being thrown in. So there's something to discuss here. Who is Moloch? Well, I'm glad you asked. If we look to the Bible in 1 Kings uh, 11.7 and in 1 Kings 11.33, Moloch is called the detestable god of the Ammonites, and then he's also later called just the God of the Ammonites. So, so this is a, um, somebody was worshiping this God, lowercase g, uh, in the Ammonites in, uh, Ammon, the place that the Ammonites live in Ammon. He is their God. And Ammon is a country that is east of the Jordan River. And in the Bible, often when we read about Molech, cause he's told about more in just these two verses, but that's just telling us who, who Molech is. But often when we read about Molech, we are told in the Bible, do not do what the followers of Molech do. Don't do what they do. And if you do what Molech's followers do, it's going to be bad for you. So what is it that the followers of Molech are up to? Well, in Leviticus 18.21, we read, Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech, for you must not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. And then Leviticus 20, verses 2 and 3 says, Say to the Israelites, Any Israelite or any foreigner residing in Israel who sacrifices any of his children to Molech is to be put to death. The members of the community are to stone him. I myself will set my face against him and will cut him off from his people. For by sacrificing his children to Molech, he has defiled my sanctuary and profaned my holy name. Now, there are other mentions in the Bible about Molech and how his followers sacrificed their children to him. That's pretty messed up. And God is very, very, very clear on this. Do not sacrifice your children, period. Don't kill them and don't kill them as a sacrifice to a God. No good. Don't do it. It was bad then. It's bad now. So I would think that in Metropolis, this has to be a reference with this machine that people are being sacrificed to, to this god of the Ammonites, Molech, who people in Ammon were sacrificing their children to. Uh, so, so it appears here that these people are being sacrificed to this machine, just like people were sacrificing their children to Molech. So I think there's clearly 
a biblical connection here to why this machine is called Molech. But why are these people being sacrificed to this machine? And why is it happening right after there's been an accident in the factory? Was there not enough sacrifices to this machine god so that there was an accident and now they need to appease their machine god with human sacrifices so there are no more accidents? There's even a face on this machine. I I didn't notice this to begin with, but there's a face on this machine and people are being led up the stairs and and it's actually being fed into the mouth of this. And there's gears and other things, the pistons that looks like that are moving around kind of like teeth and just killing the people as they are are walking into the mouth of this machine, and it's pretty creepy. However, it didn't really happen. It was all just a vision of Fredder. The picture on the screen wiggles a little bit, and there's no machine god with sacrifices being made to it, but there are people being carried away from the accident. That was real. The accident, the explosions, whatever happened in the factory, that was real. And I assume those who are being carried away are dead. So while there's not a literal God machine that people are being marched up the stairs to be fed to, there are sacrifices of workers' lives as they work on this great machine. I think that's what's being communicated here, that people are being sacrificed to keep this machine running. And it's not necessarily that they're being marched up the stairs to be fed into this machine's mouth, but they are sacrificing lives to keep this machine running so the metropolis can keep doing what it does. And the question I think being asked, at least by Fredder here, is, is that a price worth being paid? Is that a price worth being paid? Well, Fredder goes to see his father, a man named John Fredderson. So, Fredder's, is Fredder's name Fredder Fredderson? (laughs) I'm not sure if it is or not. I believe we only ever see him referred to as Fredder. So, I don't know if Fredder is just a short kind of nickname for the last name Frederson, or if, if Fredder's name is Freder Frederson. I'm not sure. I don't really know, but uh, we have John Frederson and then Freder Frederson, I, I guess. Anyway, we're told that John Frederson is the master of, of Metropolis and Freder tries to talk to his dad and his dad tells him to wait and, and goes on working and doesn't pay attention to Fredder. And then Fredder tells someone in his dad's office that, uh, tell, tell someone in his dad's office about what has happened, about the accident and what is going on. And they look concerned. Uh, John, he looks annoyed. His son is there and he's causing a distraction while he's trying to get some work done. And then this man, I, I think, or, or, or maybe, I, I think it's either this man, I think, well, actually, I think, so, so here's another thing. Sometimes it's hard to tell exactly who's talking, I think, in this movie. You'll cut to somebody, you'll cut to somebody else, and you cut to some words, and I'm like, wait, did which one of those was was saying that? Is it the last person we see? And then the version I watched was very old and not great quality, and I'm like, wait a second, was that John, or was that the other man in the office? So anyway, so I think that it is John who tells Fredder such accidents are unavoidable. So John is more concerned that his son was allowed in the machine room than he is about the loss of the workers' lives. He wants to know, how did my son get down there to the machines? He shouldn't be down there. That's only reserved for the workers because John clearly views the workers as less than. But Jesus said something very interesting about those who are considered less than or those that are the least. In Matthew 25, verses 34 through 40, we read, 
Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison or go and visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then later on, in that same passage, those who were not righteous, they did nothing. They did nothing for the least of society. They did nothing for the lowest, and therefore they also did nothing for Jesus. Now, I want to make it very clear that this is not a works-based salvation, but it is very true that it depends that, that, that we need to be aware of how we treat people and what we are doing to other people, because if we have a love of Jesus in our hearts, that should flow to other people. And if those, if we're not doing those kinds of actions that Jesus tells us to, then, well, you will know a tree by its fruit. And if we're not producing fruit that Jesus says that his followers we will produce, then what kind of tree, what kind of person, if we're being, if our actions are not resulting in the actions of those who follow Jesus? So this is not, hey, you were saved by doing this. This was your actions show where your heart is. And if you're not doing any of these things for the least of these, then I know where your heart is because your actions will show where your heart is. So uh, uh, I just thought that was interesting there. The way that John Frederson treats the least of these is clearly different than how Jesus would want us to treat the least of these. Back to the movie, and Frederick tells his dad that he went down the, to the machine room to see what his brothers looked like. Um, so so Frederick, I don't think these are his literal, physical, biological brothers. I think that it's just kind of his brothers in the general human race kind of kind of sense. That, that, at least that was my understanding. So Frederick shows concern for the workers, but his father does not. We see this when Frederick says, It was their hands that built the city of our of ours father but where do the hands belong in your scheme and then john replies in their proper place the depths where do the hands belong in your scheme in the proper place the depths that's pretty drastic and again we see this class division here the haves and the have-nots the rich and the poor and where where john believes those people are and then fredder asks what will you do if they turn against you someday? And here is something to put on the side of the scale labeled, you cannot fully separate the art from the artist because if you know your World War II and Nazi Germany history, you should be starting to see why this film, while not made by people who were Nazis at the time, was one of the favorite of many of the Nazis. You can start to see some 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 more the working class rising up and we can start to see some of those different things throughout the film fighting against those who are ruling and and that the working class is being held down by by the ruling class and there needs to be an uprising of the workers to take their place so if you are familiar with your world war ii nazi germany history you can start to see some of those kinds of things some of those kinds of ideas being in here now, a foreman from the shop comes and gives John some plans for something. I don't know. It looks like a child's drawing. 
and uh, it tells John, um, and, and then he also tells John that two men were killed in the factory today. So John then uh, appears to fire someone in his office. Yeah, I guess he wasn't doing a good enough job. So he's not fired because the workers were killed. He's just fired because he's not doing a good enough job. And then Frederick chases after the man who was just fired, who's walking down some stairs. And when th- and this man who's just fired walking down these stairs pulls a gun from his pocket and s- points it towards his own head. But Frederick stops him. So again, we see here this uh, idea uh, of suicide in science fiction. It's been maybe in half, may- maybe just around half, a little more, a little less. I'm not exactly sure. Of the works we have examined, at some point we have talked about suicide because we see that over and over here in in works of science fiction. And as always, if you are having thoughts of of harming yourself or others or or feel like you need someone to talk to about the stress, the difficulties of life, depression, things are getting you down, whatever it may be, uh, the number to call in America is uh, 800-273-8255. Again, that's 800-273-8255. Five, five. And if you're not in America, I know we have some international listen, listeners. Thank you for that. You can Google uh, a, a suicide hotline for your country to find the number. Or also, if you're in America, again, you can text the word home, H-O-M-E to 741-741 to be able to, talk, to text with a real person. I know some people prefer texting over talking, so you can text the word home to 741 741. And if you need help, please seek and get help and reach out and contact someone. So Fredder asks this man, we finally find out his name. His name is Joseph. So Fredder asks Joseph uh, for help. Doing what I'm not exactly sure, but he does ask him for help. So Fredder goes back to the machine room and one of the workers tells him that someone must always stay with the machine. Someone must always stay with the machine. And this worker that is there is obsessed with this machine. Almost, it's almost religion-like how, how obsessed he is with the machine and keeping the machines running and what he's doing. So then it pops up on the screen that it says, in the middle of the city was an old house. And then, then um, so, so Fredder stays there and Fredder is, is working on, uh, takes the, his place and is working to keep the machine running. And, and it's just an exhausting task it looks for. For Fredder, we'll get there in a minute. But it says, uh, then on the screen, it says, in the middle of the city was an old house. And in this house lived a man named Rotwang, and he is an inventor. So Rotwang says, uh, at last his work is ready. He says, I have created a machine in the image of man that never tires or makes a mistake. I think there's quite a bit of theology there. The making of something in one's own image, how God has made people in his image. We have discussed that before and in multiple episodes. We're really not going to discuss that much. If you want to hear more about that, you can go back and listen to previous episodes. But also here it says, he says that he has made a machine in the image of man that never tires or makes a mistake. Well, we also know that the people make mistakes, that we uh, sin and that we are fallen and we live in a fallen world and what the fall means. So we've actually discussed those things before too, so we're not going to get into that much right here, but that's a, a pretty significant line there from Ro Twang. I've created a machine in the image of man that never tires or makes a mistake. So he's trying to make something better than what man is, I think at least better in his understanding 
Um, but but I think there's some uh, ways that Rotwang here is taking on uh, a, a very godlike role in the creating uh, of a being, uh, even though it's a machine, in the image of man and that it never tires or makes a mistake. And then he says uh, that now we have no further use for living workers, is what uh, Rotwang says. And then we see her, the machine person. The android for the first time. There are many names that this robot goes by. She goes by Maria, uh, Futura, the robot, the machine human. Uh, in, in the book, she's known as Futura. I never saw that in the version that I watched being referred to her as that, but she is sometimes referred. Uh, she's referred to that in the book. And then she's also called Maria because, well, we'll see eventually what happens with Maria, and I don't think I gave a spoiler alert. I usually try to do that. Sometimes I forget. Well, if a movie's nearly a hundred years old, I don't feel like I need to give a spoiler alert. So I'm I'm good with that. So uh, Rotwang holds up a black gloved hand and asks, "Isn't it worth the loss of a hand to have created the works of the future, the Machine Men?" And I guess that's what you do in sci-fi if you lose a lose a hand, right? You get a robotic hand. And then you wear a black glove over it, right? Uh, we, we know a few Jedi that's happened to. Here it happens to Rotwang. Maybe that was a shout out in uh, Star Wars to this. I'm not sure, but apparently that's in sci-fi. If you lose a hand, just put a robotic hand on there and throw a black glove on it. Also, uh, again, um, I just want to note here, I think that this is one of the ways where uh, some of the movie being cut out is most significant from what I've read from the, the full version. So my, my understanding is in the full version, there's a plot that develops here between John and Rotwang and they were in love with the same woman and something happens and she's not alive now. And I, I, I don't know. I read a little bit about it. I'm like, I don't know what's happening here. This was not at all in the movie I watched. Um, so, so, so anyway, the, the, it seems to be, and then, uh, Rotwang is seeking some revenge in the movie um, in the original full version that we don't see here. Some, some things make some more sense, but right here they don't necessarily kind of make as much sense as I think the full version is from what I read from that, but I only read a little bit of it and I can't, I can only, uh, can only discuss the version that I've seen. So Rotwang makes a promise that he can't deliver on. At least I don't think he can deliver on, but we'll see. He says, um, give me, a, and this is what he says to John, give me another 24 hours and I'll bring you a machine which no one will be able to tell from a human being. I think that's quite a big promise, a machine that no one can tell from a human being. I, I, don't, I don't think he could do that in 24 hours, but we're in, 20, we're in a science fiction film, so perhaps he can. And then John, um, John has been finding... Um, plans and the workers clothing and he wants to know what they mean so he shows these plans that we've seen earlier to rotwang and um then we go uh back to looking at fredder in the factory who is still running that piece of machinery that he was told someone has to stay with this machine all the time he's taken the place of an exhausted worker so the person who is there is just exhausted he he looks like he's barely staying awake he can barely stand up so fredder takes his place uh, and then at the um, end of the shift, Fredder looks exhausted as well after he's been working there. And at the end of the shift, he is. Uh, we're told that she has called another meeting, whoever she is. And then Fredder yells out, Father, Father, I did not know that 10 hours 
can be torture. I did not know that 10 hours can be torture. So what Fredder has been doing for the last 10 hours is it looks like he's just standing in front of a very large clock and is just randomly moving the hands all around. He moves them from, you know, what looks like nine o'clock to two o'clock and then gets uh, another hand and moves it somewhere else and then gets the third hand and moves it somewhere else. I'm not sure what he's doing, but he's literally just moving all these hands of a clock in different various random directions. And apparently he's been doing that for the last 10 hours and he did not know that 10 hours of work could be torture, but he has found out after taking the place of that other man. And then we find out that thanks to Rotwang, that thanks to Rotwang, we find out that the plans are of the catacombs of the city. And where this meeting is going to take place. And so there are lots of, of workers that go there uh, for this meeting. Uh, Fritter uh, included uh, goes in to check out this meeting and what is happening on here. And then up on a stage, there's a woman in all white with multiple crosses behind her on the stage. And what looks to me like angel wings on the side of the stage. There's some very visual cues here that, that this person you know that this is this lady is good she she's someone who's on the right side she's got crosses behind her and angel wings to the side of the stage and all these different things and and fredder seems to be very receptive to what she's saying whatever that may be is we don't exactly know everything that she said because we don't get to hear the whole read the whole speech but and then he falls to his knees and then this woman says today i will tell you the story of the tower of babel well, let's see how accurate this is in her telling of it. This woman says, Today I will tell you the story of the Tower of Babel. So let's see how accurate this is. Is, is she a pastor? Uh, who is she? The next thing that we read is, Let us build a tower whose summit will touch the skies, and on it we will inscribe, Great is the world and its creator, and great is man. Those who had conceived the idea of this tower could not build it themselves, so they hired thousands of others to build for them. But these toilers knew nothing of the dreams of those who planned the tower. While those who had conceived the tower did not concern themselves with the workers who built it, the hymns of praise of the few became the curses of the many. And then the word babble appears on screen. So I I, I don't think that's exactly... well. That's not exactly the uh, story of the Tower of Babel, but but it kind of I think that the way that it's real, she's relating it here is that those who are the ruling class they're higher up on the towers. So they're the ones who who have wanted to build this high tower to separate the the different classes. And but it's not them who have built the tower. The, the, they didn't get to they didn't build it, although they got to enjoy. Uh, the fruits of the labor of other people who have built it. So I'm not exactly sure how this relates to the Tower of of Babel, other than it seems to be some kind of tower that's been built for Metropolis. Um, but, but I'm not really sure how that's relate relates to the Tower of Babel because uh, here is the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, 1 through 9. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. 
The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. This is why it was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So what is going on here? Well, there's a few things. There's the heart of the people that is there, but also the attitude of the people in Babel. But there's also the materials that they use and how those are relevant. So the heart of the people there shows that they were disobedient to God's command to go and fill the earth, to multiply and fill the earth. Instead of going out and filling the earth, they stay, go stay in one place where they want to just build this one tower. But it also shows that perhaps the people here did not exactly believe in God's promise that he would never flood the earth again. They go there and they make a tower in a way that seems to be unusual. They don't use stone, but they make bricks and and they make mortar out of tar. They're trying to make something that is waterproof, maybe just in case there is another flood that comes along at some point. So the their heart, their attitude, and the materials that they use lead us to to conclude, lead us to, to see that they don't exactly believe God. They don't exactly have a trust that God is going to remain faithful to his word, and that's kind of where they start out here. Now, it's also doubtful that they could build a tower to heaven. It's more likely that they would have built the tower as an observation point to the heavens. It was built unto the heavens. So there's a lot of uh, astrological and occult practices that uh, have a history that go back to Babel. So, so they, they would have been looking to, to try to read the stars and try to do those different kinds of things, making a tower unto the heavens almost as a way of worshiping creation, not the creator. And then uh, this forced separation of people from Babel was really God's mercy more than his judgment. So God goes and divides people up and spreads them throughout the land and, and gives them a different language and geography. And, and he's trying to put a check on what people are doing coming together in their fallen nature. So if they had stayed together and just relied on themselves and never was relying on God or never turning to God or never being faithful to him, that would be very bad for everyone. So instead, instead of God just raining down his mercy, instead of God just raining judgment down upon the people, he, he has mercy on them and spreads them out throughout the land. And um, so it's, it's just the, the whole account of what happened at Babel, the, it just shows us that not much has really changed, I don't think. They're not trusting in God. They're rebelling against him. They have a distrust in his promise. And I think that we can see that some today. So those are just some of the things that are happening at the Tower of Babel and understanding that story. But how does that relate to this movie? I don't know. I'm not sure that it does from what Maria said and just the different ways. I just think that it's Hey, Metropolis is like a tower, so let's mention the Tower uh, of Babel, even though they don't really say anything about people being spread or languages or any of that kind of thing. I'm, I'm not sure that there's a great connection in the version that I watched. Again, it could be different with the full version. Then this woman continues, Maria, she continues with her sermon, I don't know, speech, I don't know what we want to call it. She says, between the brain that plans and the hands that build, there must be a mediator. It is the heart that must 
bring about the understanding between them. And then all the workers bow in response to this woman's sermon. And then Federer, Freder asks, but where is our mediator, Maria? And her response is, be patient. He will surely come. Well, friends, we do not have to be patient because the true mediator has already come. In 1 Timothy 2.5, we read, For there is one mediator, one God and one mediator between God and people, the man Jesus Christ. There is one God and one mediator between God and people, the man Jesus Christ. God has sent a mediator to us, and that is his son, Jesus. So a mediator is somebody who goes between two different parties to try to come to a solution, to try to to bridge a divide that exists between these two parties. And when sin enters the world, there is a divide that comes between God and people. Uh, That relationship has been broken, and there is a divide that grows between them. But Jesus is the perfect mediator because he is completely 100% divine, but also 100% human. He is fully divine, but also fully human. So, Simply put, whatever it means to be divine, whatever it means to be God, that's what Jesus is. Whatever it means to be human, that's what Jesus is. Jesus is fully God and fully human, so he is the one who can come and mediate between both parties. He can speak on behalf of God the Father because Jesus is God. He is divine, part of that holy trinity. But God can also speak on behalf of people because he is fully human. So he can come and he can mediate between God and he can mediate between people. He is the one who can mediate between those two parties. And God is the mediator and he brings about mediation through the work of being prophet, priest, and king. So the Son of God became incarnate, became human to do the, the, the threefold work of prophet, priest, and king. So Jesus is a prophet in that he, he comes and he teaches. He, he preaches and he speaks on behalf of God, as prophets do. And he, so he has words that he preaches to us that tells us who he is and how we should be living. But more than that, we see who he is through his deeds and what he does for people and setting people free from demon possessions and, and, and healing people and raising people from the dead. And he also sets an example for how we should live as the perfect person, the one who is without sin. So he is a prophet. He, he has revealed who God is. If you want to know who God is, we know who Jesus is, because knowing Jesus means that we know God. So uh, he, he is a, like a rabbi, a teacher, a, a prophet, one who speaks on behalf of God. But Jesus is also... Uh, does the work of a priest. Now, in the Old Testament, a priest would be the one who would be responsible for making sacrifices so that people could be forgiven of their sins when they were make sacrifices. So the priest would go and would make sacrifices for the people. Well, Jesus doesn't go and make a sacrifice for the people, but he becomes the sacrifice for the people. So through his his sacrificial death, he does the work of a priest, laying himself down as the sacrifice, instead of sacrificing an animal, he becomes the sacrifice. 
also in the Old Testament, what people would do, what the priests would do is they would intercede on behalf of other people. They are the ones who would go and represent uh, represent the people before God. They are the ones who would go and intercede on behalf of God and people. Well, we know that Jesus intercedes on our behalf. He's the one who goes and intercedes, so he does that priestly work. Now, also, through that priestly work of the Old Testament, people would be redeemed. They would be made right with God through through the sacrifices, and, and they could be forgiven and could have redemption. And Jesus brings about redemption to humanity through his sacrifice. So he has an atone, he, he atones for our sins and his sacrificial death. He has a, a dying ministry where he is the lamb and redeems humanity. But Jesus is also king. He's the one who will be the, the he, he governs over the world. He, and this was not so much necessarily the world that we live in now, but it really is referring to the end times, that Jesus is the end time ruler, that, that he is alive right now. He is the one who gives life to people, a new life you can have, and he is dominion. And, and, and one day, will reign over the new heaven and the new earth. He, is, he will govern over that. He, he is alive now and is glorified and is still even interceding on behalf of us now and the end time ruler as redemption is applied to our hearts through Jesus and through what he has done for us. So Jesus does the, 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 brings about mediation between God and people by doing the work of prophet, priest, and king speaking on behalf of God, doing the work of God, and giving an example of how we should live as somebody who is fully human. But as, and then also laying down his life for us, going on behalf of people and taking the sins of the world upon himself, going and stepping in the place, the, the God of the universe, stepping in the place of people and dying on the cross. And then, of course, he's resurrected and comes back to life, and is the one who is life and is true life. So so through those, he comes and he mediates between people and God as, as he does the work of prophet, priest, and king, and becomes the one who can mediate between the righteousness of God and the sin of, of humanity. The mediation between the righteousness of God and the sin of humanity is done through Christ's work as prophet, priest, and king. So the personal union of, of, the, of deity and humanity and Christ is the basis upon which salvation is brought to humanity. So because Jesus is fully God, because Jesus is fully human, he is the one, the one and only mediator who can go and, and can, can go to, to close that gap, to close that divide that has come between God and people. For there is one God and one mediator between God and people, the man Jesus Christ. So he can mediate on both sides because when there's a conflict, one side has to have the ability to, to empathize with the other. One side has to have, there has to be somebody who, who can be in the middle and can, can make sure to to understand both sides, to understand both point of views, to, to empathize with each, with each side, to be able to know what it is to be there with, with, on each side and to truly understand that. And Jesus is the unique one who can do that because he's both God, fully God, and fully human and is the one mediator that has come to 
to, to bring and to bridge the relationship that was broken by sin, by God and people. That can be broken, and Jesus mediates through that to make that happen through doing the work of prophet, priest, and king. But in the movie, well, that's how Jesus is our mediator. And it's amazing. I, I, I love looking at that and the work that Jesus has done and how he has brought about mediation, how he's brought two sides together that were torn apart by sin, but Jesus has brought them back together through his mediation, through through going and being able to re- represent both God and people. But in the movie, what kind of mediator do they need? Do they need a mediator between the workers and John, between the workers and the machine? Who is the mediator and how will they mediate and who are they representing? Well, eventually we'll find out that the workers need a mediator between them and the ruling or the rich class. But why would the ruling class want that? Why would the ruling class want to change anything? They're living in their city above ground. Everything's going fine for them. They don't have to work. They're ruling over people. They don't have to go below ground and risk dying uh, to be able to make sure this machine runs the way that it can. Why would the ruling class or the why would the rich want that? I'm not sure if they would. Which makes it even more amazing that God came to us. God, who is the one who's in the position of power, the one who has really everything to offer, and there's nothing that we have to offer God that he needs. Now, again, God wants to be in relationship with us, but we have nothing to offer God that he needs. God doesn't need anything to be able to survive and to be able to to go on living and being who he is. But but we need stuff, something from God. We need to be saved. We need to, to, to enter into that right relationship with him. And that can only happen through his power. So God comes to us. The one who is in the position of power steps down, humbles himself, becomes human, and is able to mediate on our behalf. And it's just amazing to me that that's the love that God has for you. And that's what God wants to do. Although it would seem to me here that the ruling class does not want that. So then Perhaps it's the working class that needs to rise up and make sure to get the attention uh, of, of the ruling class. But back to the movie, and after Maria says to be patient, he will surely come. One of the workers replies, we will not, we will wait, but not for long. Uh, then John and Rotwang, who have snuck into this meeting, well, they're more spying on the meeting. They They talk and and John tells Rotwang to make his robot in the likeness of that girl, to make her his likeness and to make his robot in the likeness of Maria. And then John shows just how diabolical he is. He wants Rotwang to hide the real Maria in his house and to then to send out the robot Maria to get the workers to sow up discord among them so that her confidence can be destroyed and so that the the, the working class can't rise up to take over like Maria is trying to get them to do. And then eventually Rotwang agrees to do that. And then Fredder and Maria make plans to see each other the next day, but Maria is kidnapped by Rotwang. And um, the workers um, have assembled for their next meeting, but Maria is nowhere to be found. Um, so then um, I, I, I don't. Again, uh, something interesting here happens as they're looking for Maria. So Frederer goes and finds, um, I wasn't sure what it was at first. Was it some people? Was it some mannequins? Was it some skeletons? Something or, or someones? Were they alive? 
I didn't know what they were, but the, the, it's, it, what it is is a statue, and there's people just standing there in this statue, although they didn't look like a statue. That's why I was very confused on this, but that's what it's supposed to be. It is people are. It's supposed to be a statue of people, and then the words pop up on the screen, the seven deadly sins. Well, again, I think that's something that we should pause to take a look at. What are the seven deadly sins, and where do they come from? Well, the seven deadly sins are lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, and pride. And if you guessed that the seven deadly sins came from the Bible, I'm sorry you're incorrect. The seven deadly sins actually do not come from the Bible. There's not a list saying here the seven deadly sins in the Bible. There's not a list uh, like that. I don't I could be wrong here, but it, I, I don't think there's even a list, the, uh, the list in the Bible that has oh, these specific seven things and only these specific seven things. I don't, I don't think that's even in there. So, uh, however, some um, suggest that the seven deadly sins, where they came from, can be traced as far back as Aristotle, who lived from 384 to 322 B.C., Although he did write about the danger of these seven things, or at least something close to these seven things, but he also wrote about the dangers of a lot of other things. So some people look and say that, well, this is kind of where the seven deadly sins started with what Aristotle was writing about, you know, in the 300 BCs, but he writes about more than just these seven things. So I'm not sure that's exactly where we can look at to say that these seven deadly sins started from. They were certainly not referred to as the seven deadly sins by Aristotle. There's more writing about sins or vices to be avoided. Sometimes they were called principal or primary vices that should be avoided. So, but a lot of times these this came in a list of eight. So, so at one time I guess they were the eight deadly sins, but became the seven deadly sins. So I guess there's one sin that quite didn't make the cut that's a little less deadly than the other ones. And that sin that was listed, or well, again, maybe maybe a vice would be a better word. Something to be avoided, uh, I, I think would be a, a better way of saying that, especially for this one, and I can understand why it would be taken uh, from the list, but it would be something along the lines of sorrow or dejection or even maybe depression. Sometimes it's hard to find an exact translation of what this would be when it was written about very early on with this list of eight vices to avoid sorrow, dejection, depression, those kinds of things, something to be avoided at one point was on this list and then was dropped. So, so it didn't quite make the cut. And I, I think I can understand why. And it's interesting that, um, and th- that that was dropped as, as uh, late or as early as 590 is when we really see that. So in 590, Pope Gregory the first, he writes this, I think the first time that I could tell that we really see a list of these seven, Uh, principal vices to avoid. So here's what Pope Gregory I wrote. For pride is the root of all evil, of which it is said, as Scripture bears witness, pride is the beginning of all sin, Ecclesiastes 10.13. But seven principal vices as its first progeny spring doubtless from its poisonous root. So these are the things that come from pride, namely vainglory, which is what we would call pride, actually. So pride produces more pride, which I think is actually true in the way that that goes. So vainglory, thinking better about yourself than what you really are, pride. So uh, pride is listed, vainglory or pride is listed first, then envy, and then anger is listed next, or wrath, as we would say, so anger or wrath. 
And then melancholy is is listed next, which we would translate today as sloth. So just having that kind of melancholy, kind of slow down, moving kind of an attitude, not in a hurry or not wanting to do anything or just wanting to sit around. That kind of that that would today would be translated as sloth or being laziness, whatever you want to call it, uh, would be in there. And then the next one was avarice or greed, and then gluttony or lust. So in its entirety, this part of this by Pope Gregory the first says, but seven principal vices as its first progeny spring doubtless from its this poisonous root, namely vainglory, envy, anger, melancholy, avarice gluttony and lust and i believe that's the first time we see the list of vices to be avoided or seven deadly sins as they sometimes been called but back to the movie and how are the seven deadly sins going to relate to what we see i don't think they really do in any way that i can tell but so I wasn't really sure if these were sculptures or not, but they, they are. I don't know. I thought maybe they were alive at one point. They looked very human-like to me and not very sculpture-like, if that makes sense. And then I thought maybe they're robots. I wasn't exactly sure about, but this is supposed to be a, a sculpture that is supposed to represent the seven deadly sins. I don't exactly see it in the sculpture, but again, the quality of this movie is not great. And I'm still interested and wonder what the seven deadly sins will have to do with the rest of the film. But back to uh, Ro Twang, who has captured Maria. She tries to escape, and Fredder hears her yelling. And he goes into Ro Twang's house to see, well, nothing. Ro Twang's door is shut by themselves, and Fredder cannot get to Maria. And then Maria is on a table hooked up with electrodes and and cables, and going from her to a a robot. And then Ro Twang flips a switch, and the robot looks like Maria. So then. Fredder is stuck in uh, in Rotwang's house, but he's set free, and uh, he sees Rotwang and asks where Maria is, and he replies that she is with his father, but it is really Robot Maria who is with his father, and when John sees Robot Maria, he says the copy is perfect. Now go down to the worker and undo Maria's teaching, stir them up to criminal acts. Then Fredder walks in to see Robot Maria and his father, and what he thinks is an intimate moment. They're in an embrace. Uh, he he. So he thinks that they're they're in some kind of relationship. I I think, uh, but I mean, it, this just appears that his mind is blown when he sees this. I mean, there are flashes and there are bangs and there are visions on the screen. His mind, like his mind, is just blown when he sees this. And then uh, Fredder wakes up in bed. And there's a letter on his nightstand from Ro Twang. I think it's an invitation to a party. Again, I couldn't really read what was on there. Then John and Ro Twang, they are at a party, and they put uh, Robot Maria to the test. Will people be able to tell that she's a real robot? Or well, if she's a robot or a creature of flesh and blood. And then Maria, Robot Maria dances rather seductively at this party. All the men are staring at her, and I believe that she has passed the test then i think fredder has a vision or maybe this really happens i i don't know but the seven deadly sins statues start to move and dance well but uh one of them does one of the people on the statue is a skeleton with a a a scythe like the grim reaper and he is coming to fredder and so so, so i i don't know I, i think that's just a vision that he's having that he thinks he's gonna die maybe 
I don't know. Then we cut to Rotwang and Real Maria, and Rotwang says, John Frederson is looking for an excuse to use violence against the workers. Maria, you always pleaded for peace, but now the robot in your likeness has been commanded to incite the workers to violence. So the more I watch this, the more I become uncomfortable with these similarities to the Nazis. And I think that's something that goes throughout the film with the, the rise of the workers and having some kind of worker party almost even in that kind of ideology within here. But Rotwang says the workers accept the robot as Maria and Maria, Maria responds, I have preached patience. And then we cut to robot Maria talking to the workers and says, but your mediator has not come and never will come. I am thankful that our mediator truly has come though, and that is the person, the human, Jesus Christ. And uh, then Freder is told that Maria is inciting the workers to revolt, and he and she's told the workers to destroy everything, so Freder can't believe it. This is not the real Maria. He needs to go see for himself, and the robot Maria is telling them, you know, this is the time to act. This is the time we should do some things. Why should you sweat yourselves to death to benefit the Lord of Metropolis? Who is it that keeps the machines going? So Freder sees Maria talking to workers. You know, she's asking questions. Who are the slaves of the machines? Let the machines stop. Destroy the machines. But then Freder yells out, you are not Maria. Maria pleads for peace, not for violence. This is not Maria. And then one of the crowd points to Freder and yells, John Frederson's son. And I imagine that's not going to yell, going to go well for him. And yep. Somebody in the crowd yells, kill him. And Freder turns to hands real quick, throwing left and right hooks, knocking people down. But the workers don't seem to be too deterred as one yells, uh, let no one remain behind. We're destroying the machines. And they quickly turn away from trying to kill Freder to just going and destroying machines. He punches a few people and they seem to have nothing more to want to do with him instead of going to go destroy some machines and they go to take out the central powerhouse and then we see john getting an update on what's happening and then checking the security system to see what's going on and he makes a call to one of the workers um uh, he's making he makes a call and is told that the workers are destroying everything and john says if they destroy the the powerhouse the worker city will be flooded then the guy in the central power house asks if they've gone mad. He tells them they're flooding their own homes, but he's quickly overpowered and they uh, they turn off the power uh, that's at the powerhouse. And then we read that at last Maria managed to escape. I assume this is the real Maria, not the robot Maria. And she sees the destruct real Maria sees the destruction caused by robot Maria and the workers. She rings some kind of warning bell and everyone in the worker everyone in the worker city comes out and there's like children and there's women and there's like that's who's running to her she's ringing the bell in the worker city and freder of course um, meets maria there as well and proclaims her the real maria and he leads uh, all the children and and women that are in there to safety as the reservoir uh, bursts so John sees what is happening and asks, where is my son? Tomorrow, thousands will ask in anguish, where is my son? So Freder and real Maria save the children. And then Freder says that he will go and tell the workers they're safe. But this just doesn't make sense to me. These are the workers' children. So in their rebellion, the workers flooded their own homes 
Well, they knew their own children and presumably wives and, and, and other family members were there. So Maria incites them to violence. They go to shut off the power, knowing that it's going to flood their own houses. But yet, go and do it anyway without ever going to get their children out of the houses, without ever going to get their wives out of the houses, without ever going to get their moms or grandmothers or anything out of the house. It just doesn't make sense. Like, they're just going to flood this place, but they're going to be killing their own families. It just doesn't make sense to me. I just don't get this part of the story. It, it makes no sense. And we actually even come back to that, to that later. And then uh, Maria says, let us take them into the eternal gardens. Uh, eternal gardens. I think what Maria is referring to is going up into the actual city of Metropolis to take them out into the sunlight, to take them out where they can actually not be living underground. Talking about the children, that kind of thing. I think that's what Maria is referring to. Of course, the only eternal garden is uh, would be heaven. But I mean, that's really more than a garden. But anyway, I believe that's what she's referring to. So back to the movie and someone asks the workers, where are your children? Your entire worker city is underwater. And then the workers, it looks like the workers for the first time actually have this dawn upon them that, oh no, we actually, what have we done? That they are screaming, that they are crying, that they can't believe this has happened to their children, although they are the ones who cause it, so this just doesn't make sense. Again, maybe in the full version it would make more sense. But they have done this to themselves. They were so caught up in the rebellion that they forgot about their children that's just crazy i don't know it's a lot of uh, belief to suspend but then a man asks the workers who told you to destroy the machines you fools and thus to destroy yourselves like where is this guy you know 10 minutes ago uh, when robot maria was going crazy but of course it was uh, uh maria who told them to destroy it robot maria and um someone's says about her, you know, calls her the witch. She's to blame for all of this. Find her, kill her. So when they find her, they attack her, but they don't know about Robot Maria and what's going on here. Uh, but anyway, Fredder still tries to stop them, but they tie Maria to a pile of rubble, rubble. It looks like they're going to burn her at the stake, and that's what's happening. They have a fire, and they, they, they're shutting up this pile, and, and they, bring, they even bring Fredder in to see. However, they have the robot Maria. The real Maria was, was hiding, um, but Ro Twang stops her from going to the crowd because he's worried that they'll kill him if they find out what he has done. So they set robot Maria on fire, and real Maria wants to go tell them, hey, look, it's still me, I'm alive, that wasn't really me, look what Ro Twang did, he tricked you all, but so Ro Twang doesn't want that. But as Robot Maria burns, it's revealed that she is a robot and the real Maria is seen running from uh, Rotwang. And eventually, Fredder catches Rotwang. They have a fight on a balcony. Um, the workers are yelling, where are our children? But the workers are told that Fredder has saved their children. John Fredderson's son has saved your children, they are told. And John yells out, save my son, uh, who is still fighting Rotwang. So Rotwang knocks down Fredder and runs away with Maria, but Fredder catches up to him, and in their scuffle, Rotwang falls from a balcony, and then John says, thank heaven. And Fredder and Maria kiss, and the workers confront Maria, John, and Fredder, and Maria tells Fredder there can be no one, there can be no understanding between the hands and the brain unless the heart acts as mediator. 
So it would appear that Fredder is the mediator as he brings the leader of the workers uh, and his father together. So the leader of the working class and his father, he brings them together, literally grabs both of their hands, walks them together, and puts one of their puts the one hand in to the other. So it appears that John is, or, or excuse me, that Fredder is the mediator that they have been waiting for as he puts John's hands into the hands of the one who leads the workers party and mediates between those two to hopefully make some things better for everyone, especially the working class, it would seem, in Metropolis. So literally puts the hand of one into the other. And that's it. The end pops up on screen and in the version I watched, no credits rolled. It just kind of, well, ended. And that does it for Metropolis, where we have discussed how or if art can be separated from the artist, human sacrifice, Jesus as mediator, the seven deadly sins, and more. I wish I had seen the full original movie from what I have researched. This would all make more sense with the original film instead of the shorter version. To me, it seems like the original lengthier film would have been better, but I can only discuss what I have watched, and that is what I have have seen. So, what did you think of Metropolis? Is there something I missed? Is there something you noticed? Have you actually watched this? Did you enjoy it? Uh, it's a film that I can't say that I enjoyed, um, but I think it was one that was in some ways beneficial to watch to see how movies were made nearly a hundred years ago and, and what would happen and what would go on and and what they would do. So I think there's some benefits to watching it. And uh, hopefully there's some things we learned. I think there's some real benefit to be able to talk about Jesus as mediator through this and how he does the work of mediation through holding the offices of, of prophet, priest, and king. I think that, that was a worthwhile discussion that came from this. But what did you think? What did you notice? What did you like about Metropolis? You can reach out and tell me on Instagram or Twitter at Theology and Sci-Fi. And again, we spell Sci-Fi the right way around here, S-C-I-F-I. Or you can go to Facebook and like Theology and Sci-Fi, the podcast. Or you can send me an email at TheologyAndSciFi at gmail.com. We have one more episode to go in Season 1, Episode 13, Frankenstein, the first science fiction book. I'm looking forward to discussing that with you. I've already been preparing for that one and looking forward to that episode and that discussion. But that's going to be the last episode for season one. And there are some things that will be coming in season two, though. This isn't the end of the podcast. We're going to change things up just a little bit, not a whole lot, just a little bit. And you can watch for that announcement coming soon to see what will happen and how things will be changed up. So Uh, Thank you for listening. Uh, Invite a friend to listen to the podcast as well. And as always, when you are reading or when you are watching movies or when you are watching TV, be looking for for theological themes within these so that you can bring up to having conversations with other people. I think it's a great vehicle to be able to discuss who Jesus is through through works uh, of fiction where we can see somebody uh, who is a Christ figure to be able to say, hey, you know, I saw that and that that's like Jesus. And let me tell you why. Let me tell you about who Jesus is. So I think it's a great way just to be able to have that conversation with people who maybe uh, who are are not following and who don't know who Jesus is. So I encourage you to look for opportunities to do that. But this has been an interesting episode, one of the most difficult ones uh, to watch, to prepare for, and even talk about and to 
Even as I end this, I still ask myself the question, should I have looked at this one and how much can art be separated from the artist? I don't know. I'm still struggling and would love to hear from you about that. Well, I appreciate your time and thank you so much for listening. For Theology and Sci-Fi, I am Derek V. Trout.